The first thing that technology does is it offers productivity, meaning here is a machine, a milking machine, a sewing machine, a pin making machine, a fireplace, an ox with a cart, and this machine is going to make you rich. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about technology, machines, spare time, and happiness. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Hi, it's Bernadette G, and I'm here to talk to you about how you can become a better storyteller. Storytelling is not an art reserved for the chosen few. It's a skill that you can learn. Just like the students who've taken part in the Story Skills Workshop have done. Actually, I had a story to tell that was really important for me, but also was going to be very, very important for people in the future. It's been absolutely life-changing for me to see stories everywhere and to see my own stories. I was surprised that the learning was as much in the giving as in the receiving. We got to not only learn about storytelling, we actually got to practice using stories in our everyday life. If you're ready to become a better storyteller, I hope you'll join us. I hope you'll check it out. Visit akimbo.com slash go for all the upcoming workshops. Go make a ruckus. You can see why the deal is so irresistible. Because you've been slaving in your hut week after week, year after year, trying to make ends meet. And then here is this simple technology that's going to change everything. And so the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s into the Industrial Revolution are all about that simple bargain. And if you're the first person in your market to grab that bargain, you come out way ahead because your productivity translates into enormous changes in your income. The second thing that happens is your competitors get the technology as well. And all of a sudden, your enormous head start simply becomes parity, that now you're in a tie. You're more productive. The entire culture is more productive. Productivity creates community wealth because everyone's getting more from the same amount of labor, but the rules are a little bit different. But now it gets interesting. It gets interesting because in this newly productive environment, people look to technology and they look to it to two things that seem to contradict each other. The first one is convenience. And convenience has been the story of the last 50 years of our culture. Tim Wu has written about this brilliantly. But in essence, people will trade almost everything for convenience. They will drive a car knowing the damage it is doing because it's more convenient than taking public transportation. They will trade away their privacy for a couple magic beans worth of convenience. We will talk to a computer in our house that is monitoring our every move simply because it is more convenient than walking over and turning the dial on the radio. Convenience to save time. And then the second thing we look to technology for is a way to spend that time. And the question is, are we making good choices when it comes to convenience and to pastimes. Because the first fact is that over the last hundred years, 
We have become significantly more productive. Things have made our lives significantly more convenient. And yet, we have way less spare time than cavemen did, than hunter-gatherers did, than people in less technology-focused cultures have. The time seemed to go away. Here's an interesting thing to note. If a village electrifies with solar or with husk power or with some other form of technology, the first thing that happens is the electricity goes to boost productivity. The second thing that happens is that technology goes to turn on lights in the evening. And the third thing that happens is people buy a TV right away. TV. TV is sort of the crack of how we spend our time. And TV has now been bested by social networks. Between television and social networks, most people are spending five, six, seven, eight, nine hours a day engaged in something that is glowing on a screen. That is what we are trading the benefits of productivity and convenience for. The question is, is it making us happy? Is it making us happier than we were going for a walk, talking with a friend, reading a book at our own pace, knitting, making a 32-ingredient mole? It's really unusual today to find someone who grinds their own flour and makes their own baked goods. The late Charlie Trotter worked in Chicago, and he changed the world of food. He was obsessive compulsive. The meals at his restaurant were completely off any charts that most people had ever experienced before. And if you look through one of his cookbooks, you can see why. One of the recipes calls for grating eight carrots, making them into a stock, and boiling that stock off until you get just one thimble full of carrot reduction. Who would do this? Why not just walk down to the store and buy something that's more convenient. Why bake brownies if you can use a brownie mix? Why use a brownie mix if you can just buy brownies? And so we're constantly spending money, not time, for convenience. Convenience in which we have traded money for time. And what did we do with the time we got? Well, what we did with it is TV and social media. Over the last 12 months of a pandemic, most people stopped commuting. That commute could have been half an hour on average, each direction. That's an hour a day. In some cases, two hours a day, right back into the time bank. What did people do with that time? Well, a lot of people had to struggle to make ends meet. A lot of people had to struggle to find the time to raise kids at home. But many people took that extra hour and spent it on Netflix or spent it on Twitter or spent it engaging in something online. And so all of this stuff we're putting into our heads, what's it for? Who's it for? Who is benefiting? It's pretty clear that technology and capitalism together want us, if we can ascribe to them wants and desires, they want us to enable more technology and work more hours, because capitalism doesn't benefit when we're doing nothing much. Capitalism does not come out ahead when we go to the park or go for a walk. Capitalism wants us to buy, and it wants us to make. 
if we make and buy and make and buy and go into debt along the way so we can also make and buy some more, capitalism comes out ahead. And technology? Technology wants to keep selling us convenience over and over again to create more time. And what are we supposed to do with that time? Well, capitalism would like us to spend that time either working more so we can afford to buy more convenience or consuming more media so that we are in a state where we're going to spend money to deal with the emotions that that media created. One of those emotions is the need to buy more stuff. The self-storage industry in the United States is bigger than the movie industry was in 2018, back when people went to the movies. We are buying stuff and then paying money to store our stuff. And then the other thing that this media does is it makes us feel insecure. It makes us panic a little bit. It separates us. It puts us into warring factions, all of which makes it more likely that the ratchets will continue to turn. And so when the recipe calls for six hours to make a mole with 17 ingredients, and you're going to have to make a trip on foot to a farmer's market to buy some of the things you don't have at home, and then we say, nope, I'd rather just open a can. What have you done with the time you just saved? How have we decided to buy into this ratchet, which started quite innocently 300 years ago when technology showed up and said, hey, want to become more productive? And now here we are, doom scrolling all day long, trying to get back to the thing we left behind. It turns out there might be a shortcut for that thing we left behind. Maybe the idea isn't to go take a vacation to get away from this life that we've built, spending all of our money so that we have to go back to this life that we've built to earn back the money we just spent. Maybe the opportunity is to take a hard look at our culture and decide whether buying a TV is the single best thing to do next after we've electrified our home. Maybe we can take a look at what a really good day feels like and count how many of those good days were spent watching television. Now, I'm not one to talk. I have seen every episode of The Prisoner five times. I can quote line by line episodes of Star Trek. I grew up surrounded by good feelings associated with television shows. But I also know that that is not a life well lived, that it can complement what we're doing. But our real opportunity is to embrace the fact that we are social beings capable of making things better by making better things, by contributing to the culture, not just taking from it. So I know that's a rant. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with some questions from previous episodes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. When is it time to level up? When is it time to learn a new way to see the world, to connect with others, to lead, to engage in possibility? Akimbo is a B Corp, an independently owned and operated institution designed around learning, not education, not certificates, not grades, but learning together. 
It works if you do the work. I hope you'll check out what the people at Akimbo are up to. Visit akimbo.com go to find out about their new upcoming workshops and how it all works. Thanks. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode, I hope you'll visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. Two questions this week from opposite sides of the world. Here we go. Hi, Seth. It's Hope Daddy from Bloomington, Indiana. I've been lying in the bushes for weeks waiting for your take on NFTs and either the podcast or the blog, and you recently shared your thoughts on NFTs and the blog. You see an NFT as a luxury good, largely because of its lack of utility, suitable only for speculation. This is a point I've been making about NFTs to friends and colleagues, that NFTs seem to have value only because we arbitrarily decided to declare it so in a certain limited market space. NFTs do not have value due to any underlying utility. In that sense, I consider them the beanie babies of the digital world, and I agree that it's only a matter of time until the bottom drops out of the current market. That said, there's a lot being written about NFTs as the saviors of today's artists. In particular, NFTs are frequently referenced as a new solution for musicians who create original music and are seeking to connect more directly with their small audiences and to cut out labels, streaming services, and other indirect and now unnecessary players in the chain and more directly monetize their relationship with their followers. Do you believe that NFTs lack utility in all contexts or, conversely, Can you imagine a role where a creator could link some additional value related to the underlying creative work, that is, some utility in that context, to the NFTs, and make a more effective and meaningful use of them? Thank you for this one. NFTs seem to dovetail beautifully with the plight of the independent musician. My friend Kevin Kelly wrote years ago about 1,000 True Fans. It's worth revisiting this. If there are 1,000 true fans for a freelancer, a poet, a musician of any kind, 1,000 people who will instantly buy the new book, drive across town to go to the concert, support you in some concrete financial way, it's almost certainly enough. 1,000 true fans paying $100 a year, you are now making an excellent full-time living. And so when NFTs show up and people see that sometimes an NFT goes into the thousands, ten thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars, they say, wow, I don't even need a thousand true fans. I need 10. But what we have to do is decode what an NFT actually is and not confuse it with something else. An NFT is a speculative purchase. You are buying a token that shows that you own a digital artifact. Other people can see the artifact but you get bragging rights. Now, it is possible to hook all sorts of bonuses into the mechanics of an NFT, but I would argue that once you do that, it's no longer an NFT, not in the sense of it being a token. What someone is buying is not bragging rights. What they are buying is the stream of benefits that come to them. 
So for example, you could make a thousand things, let's call them NFTs for now, that anyone who owns one gets your music first, gets admitted to the concert first, gets the secret newsletter, gets whatever benefit you want to give them. But now what we've ended up with is something that's significantly more than an NFT, and we confuse things by calling it that. It would be as if when Jackson Pollock started making paintings, he said, also, if you buy my painting and still own it, you get invited to this and this and this and this over the years. But no, that's not how the art market works. A painting is a painting. The benefits are separate. So we are seeing with things like Patreon and other services, Substack, that it is possible to ask your 1,000 true fans to pony up in advance to show that they are willing to pay to support you because they get joy out of that in addition to the simple benefits. And if calling it an NFT helps you, well, please go for it. But when the bottom falls out of NFTs, and it will, I would hate for your 1,000 true fans to feel ripped off because that's not why they bought one. They bought one because they want to be closer to you, not because they're buying a token that they can sell tomorrow. Kia ora, Seth. Marie from Aotearoa, New Zealand here. I design and deliver for a nonprofit that uses physical and mental challenge in nature as a vehicle for grown people's self-belief and their self-awareness. My question's been inspired by a participant who recently shared this feedback. I met a bunch of awesome strangers who I bonded with in a way that is so different to the outside world and would be powerful stuff if it could be reproduced with your colleagues. Now, that's an exciting challenge, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Mihi to you, Seth, for the araha and the heipepe you show us through your mahi. Thank you for this question and for the greetings as well. I think what you're saying is this. You are able to create a special moment in which enrollment pays off for the people who are there. The strangers who come together in the forest, the beautiful forests of New Zealand, and have a transformative experience, largely have it because you are juxtaposing the fact that they are strangers with the fact that they signed up, they showed up, they put on their wellies, they came out in the mist, they looked each other in the eye, they paid the money, they showed up. And because they were enrolled, transformation was possible. And the problem with bringing it to our colleagues is that when work says, this is what we are going to do, people are doing it not because they want to, but because the boss said they need to. And that's why so often transformation doesn't happen at work. It is possible for transformation to happen at work. It is possible to create the conditions where people get in touch with a higher calling. But more often than not, that will only occur if individuals have already enrolled in the journey. And that's the hard work. That's the work you are actually doing when you are running these seminars. So, if you can give your graduates the tools they need to run their own version of this for the co-workers among them who are enrolled in the journey, your idea can spread and grow. But if it is determined that time and place and you are necessary, it's unlikely that corporate outings are going to have the same impact as what happens when individuals show up and say, I'm here because I want to be. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker 
at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know, and none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like we have data. What all MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas. You got access to information. That's awesome. But when are you going to show up? When are you going to face that blank page? When are you going to face the possibilities within you? When are you going to face those fears? I'm not going to let you hide. You got to show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple. It sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.